I'm Ben Forrid. I'm Polly Gill. And I'm Alyssa Mendel. And this is Chordscast. Created by the team at the Coordination of Rare Diseases at Sanford, or CORDS for short, which is a rare disease registry working to tie together patients and researchers, no matter their condition and no matter where they are in the world. In these episodes, you'll hear interviews with scientists, physicians, rare disease patients, and advocates, along with updates on our registry and ways that you can get involved. Let's get started. Welcome to this month's episode of Chords Cast. I'm Alyssa Mendel, and today's special guest is Carolyn Yu. She is a rare disease advocate for, she's been doing this for quite a while now, and today she's going to share a little bit more about her involvement in the rare disease community and also a little bit about her son's diagnostic journey. Uh, so, Carolyn, would you give us an introduction and tell the audience a little bit more about yourself? Sure. Um, my name is Caroline, and um, I, I first came across the rare disease community while I was searching the internet for um, uh, answers to, to my son's progressing symptoms. So uh, my son Alex uh, was showing uh, different symptoms, um, but they were progressing, and none of the doctors could figure out what was wrong. Uh, and so that kind of kicked off our, our diagnostic odyssey, mm -hmm. uh, our journey to, to kind of find the answers and get him a diagnosis. So remind me, how old was Alex when all of this started? He was around about between two and three years old. Okay. Um, we were noticing that he wasn't meeting certain developmental milestones, um, he, he was developing a little bit, a little bit slower than than uh, the benchmark of other kids his age, uh, but it was very subtle, um, and so it it didn't re really concern us too much, nor the pediatrician. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, and so he was two or three when symptoms kind of started to show, or when at least you noticed symptoms were starting to show, and then. How old was he when he finally got a diagnosis? And I also want to ask, how many physicians did you go to between start of symptoms and diagnosis? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, he was diagnosed in September of 2018. Oh, recently. It, okay. It, it, uh, recently, a couple of years ago. And it it was a 10-year a, a more than 10 year journey 10 years we, wow yeah more than that because he he was uh uh yes it was more than a 10 year journey um because we had noticed like i'd mentioned we had noticed symptoms around about when he was between two and three um and then when the symptoms started to show very obviously like it started to get worse and worse was probably around the age of between four and five okay so he had um, motor issues um, initially with his hands uh, his fine motor skills were not that great um, he had 
some some speech issues. His, he had issues with pronunciation, um, and then we noticed also he was not walking um, very firmly on the ground. Um, and so the, these symptoms kind of progressed and got worse. It never got better uh, as he got older. And around between four and five, we noticed he was actually getting more clumsy, uh, more clumsy. And, and that was what we initially thought. But over a year, a year and a half's time, he went uh, from maybe falling once or twice a month to falling every week to falling every other day to to a point where in kindergarten we had to have a one of the school aides make sure that they were holding his hand when they were walking with him wow. so that he wouldn't fall. I can't imagine that had to have been scary for you as a parent and to just watch your your young son go through that. Yeah, yes, yes it was and and of course I by the time he entered first grade, uh, he could no longer walk. So the, the clumsiness progressed to where we were giving him more and more support in order to, to stand up and walk. And until one day in the morning, he just basically told me, Mom, I can't, I can't get up. Wow. Uh, and so then he lost his ability to walk. And it, the, the symptoms continued to progress. He, he stopped walking but he could still use his upper body. He could wheel himself around in the wheelchair. But then even that progressed. He started to lose trunk control. He couldn't really sit up straight in the wheelchair. Uh, he slowly lost his arm control where he couldn't really control his arm. So he couldn't wheel himself around in the wheelchair. It became difficult to feed himself, to get a spoon into, um, to feed himself with a spoon. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it just progressed from uh, feet upwards from losing the ability to walk to losing trunk control, losing uh, coordination control of the arms, uh, and then eating and speaking. So his, uh, his speech started to slur. It started to slow down. It was harder for us to understand him. Um, and it was, it began, uh, he, it was harder for him to chew and swallow his food. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I'm imagining as all of this is going on, you're going from doctor to doctor, right? Because you, your son is losing his ability to do the day-to-day things in life. What's going through your head as you have to stand by and watch this? Um, anxious, um, yeah. d- desperate for answers. And yes, for sure, we were going from doctor to doctor, uh, from lab to lab doing blood tests. Of course, they would run, uh, oh, maybe it's these 10 items. So they, they run tests for 10 diagnostic items, and then we wait for an appointment, go there, get the results. It's not these, so we're going to do the next 10 or the next 15 tests. So it was constant going back to the doctor, going to the lab for a lot of um, tests, some of them invasive tests, um, skin biopsies, muscle biopsies, uh, so we were constantly at, at doctors and multiple doctors. Um, it was uh, it had already passed just the pediatrician level. We were going to um, the orthopedic specialist. We were going to the neurologist. We spent quite some time with the neurologist uh, and multiple neurologists, not mm-hmm. just at one hospital. We went um, to multiple hospitals. I think we had consulted maybe about four different neurologists, um, 
uh, in California and also outside of California. Wow. So you did, did you have to travel around the country? We did. Wow. We did. (laughs) So finally, what happens then after you've went from, you know, physician to physician, neurologist to neurologist, you're still getting no answers. You're going on what, over 10 years now. Where did you end up? What led you to getting that diagnosis then? Mm -hmm. So when we kind of exhausted all of our uh, neurology consults with different neurologists, we, um, I was looking into different um, research institutes. I think at the time I had come across some articles about other parents with uh, rare diseases and they got actually a genetic diagnosis through DNA sequencing. Mm. So I was looking for um, a, a, a sources for DNA sequencing, um, and at that time there were a couple of institutes, a couple of institutes that uh, were offering um, that as a as research, uh, and so we applied um, to a couple of the programs and was able to get to two of them. Um, and then I, I just keep searching. So it was beyond um, the physician. This was going into research institutes and presenting them with what's going on at that time uh, with our son. And that it's been, I think at that time, it was already like three or four years and we had no answers. And that was when we were starting to contact research institutes. Uh, and then uh, getting his DNA sequenced, hoping that we would get an answer. But we... we uh, unfortunately, did not. We we his his DNA has probably been sequenced the three to four different times by different institutes, and still no answer. So fi- finally, uh, in two thousand eighteen, uh, he did get the diagnosis, and it was through one of the institutes that we had gone to um, six years prior. Okay. Uh, they had did sequencing, and they they found some variants, but nothing that they can really put their finger on and say, this is, this is the disease. Mm-hmm. So um, he really didn't get the diagnosis until uh, this new gene mutation was discovered actually earlier that summer in 2018. And there were two papers that were uh, newly published uh, about a new discovery about a gene called IRF2BPL. Mm. And it was never associated with anything neurological and um, a researcher uh, discovered that it, it actually does have a connection wow. with um, uh, neurological symptoms. Wow. So if I'm understanding this right, he had the sequencing done six years prior to the mutation being discovered and being linked to neurology symptoms. Is that right? Cor- correct. Oh, correct. Wow. So he, yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so what went through your head when you guys discovered that? We were just so surprised and, yeah. and shocked because at that point it, it was already going on almost 12 years and we, we were like kind of losing hope in a sense because it's yeah. been so long and we went to multiple, you know, distinguished institutions and it still didn't have an answer. So we were shocked, number one, yeah. <laughs> and, and very happy because all along nobody none whenever because this is a progressing condition so all this time he was still getting sicker and sicker weaker and weaker and um 
you know, it's very hard to watch that and not know what's going on, mm-hmm. not know any other patients, not knowing what their prognosis would be or what treatments are available. So when we got the diagnosis, we were really happy that there was a name to it, that we, we instead of biting in the dart, we know what this is, mm-hmm. even though it's a very, very newly discovered rare disease, um, at least there was a name to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we, the other thing is that we quickly connected with other patients um, who uh, uh, got their diagnosis so that there was a, a connection. So there was a sense of community and we could share our diagnostic journey with them and, and, and share what treatments are being done or which researchers they're working with. Um, so it was, it, was, it was a shock. Uh, it was it was happiness, and mm-hmm. then it was a relief to be able to connect with other families. Yeah, twelve years later, that that's fascinating. So, you had mentioned you were able to connect to other families, and this is a very new, rare condition. How many people out there do you think have this? Or that I should rephrase that: How many people to date do we know that have this condition? I mean, is there a different name for it? Yes, so um, I mentioned it's a mutation of the IRF2BPL gene, but there is an, an acronym that's used um, called NETIMIS, okay. and that is short for actually the description of the symptoms, which is neuro, neurodevelopment disorder with regression, abnormal movement, loss of speech, and seizure. So like I mentioned early on, um, Alex had symptoms where he seemed like he had a little bit of what they called global developmental delay. And then uh, skills that he had gained, for instance, the walking, the talking, the using his hands, um, all of that started to regress. He started to lose abilities that he had. He also had these abnormal movements where he would be uh, wiping his hand on the side of his pants and he said it was something he couldn't control so it was um, a movement disorder uh, of some sort and um, of course he loss of speech he he gradually uh, did lose his speech he uh, I mentioned he was uh, his speech slowed down it started to slur and he would be repeating what I call kind of like a mumbling but he knows what he was saying but it just didn't come out that we could understand him Mm -hmm. so he, he lost his speech and then he also began to have seizures. Wow. So Netimus um, describes the actual symptoms of the disorder. Okay, okay. Wow, that is a lot. And, and how many people do we know that have this as of today? We, um, we have a Facebook group uh, for the, the disorder. And okay. right now there's about 70, roughly about 70 families um, that are in the group. And uh, when we, when Alex first got diagnosed in 2018, there were two papers published and there was less than 20 patients that were part of both papers altogether. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yes, and now two going on uh, three years, there we have 70 families. Wow, okay. And, you know, are there any treatments out there for this or therapies? Right now, no. Um, again, it's, it's still a very new disease. There's not that many um, researchers that are studying um, the disease right now. Uh, um, 
so right now there is no treatment, even though there are a handful of research institutes that are studying the disease right now to understand uh, what exactly uh, is the the biology of it and mm -hmm. what is causing all these symptoms. Uh, and so once they have that, and then also screening, um, screening for drugs and possibly that are already on the market that could be mm -hmm. used. Mm -hmm. But uh, right now, the, as of now, there is no treatment. Hopefully something comes soon. Uh, here at CORDS at Sanford Research, we get a lot of people that reach out to us who are undiagnosed and go on similar journeys. What advice do you have for those who still don't have a diagnosis and they're on that diagnostic journey? Mm -hmm. I, I have to say that, um, that they should reach out to other rare parents um, of diseases that have similar symptoms mm. okay. uh, because a lot of the times those parents are connected with um, researchers or institutes that could possibly help. Uh, not only that, but they, uh, because of the similar symptoms that they have, can share resources that have been useful for their child. Um, I have found that useful because early on in our journey when we didn't have a diagnosis. I talked to many, many different parents, some of them undiagnosed, uh, some of them that, that um, w were undiagnosed for some time but ended up uh, getting a rare diagnosis. And they're not only uh, uh, inspiring, but they also mm -hmm. uh, can connect, uh, had connect us with a lot of resources, both on the research side, with other families, and also with um, institutes that can kind of uh, move us along the journey a little bit further. So definitely reaching out to other parents and in that process, reaching out to researchers mm -hmm. um, and also organizations that help with the genetic diagnosis. I know there's, um, NIH has the Undiagnosed Disease Network mm -hmm. uh, and there are other groups that are specifically focused for undiagnosed children. Uh, for instance, um, TGen Center for Rare Childhood Disorders. Um, that is, in fact, where Alex got his diagnosis. Oh, okay. And then um, uh, Rare Genomics also has an Amplify Hope program, which also focuses on undiagnosed children. Uh, so I think my emphasis to families is to reach out and um, keep searching. Like, don't stop searching. It, it can be a a long process, but I, you just have to keep moving and keep searching. Those are some good resources and good advice. I feel like just for people to hear your story too, that is very inspiring and gives people hope. If anybody has questions for you specifically, is there a way that they could get a hold of you? Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, so I... In 2014, I actually started a support group, um, the San Diego Undiagnosed Family Support Group. And um, this was uh, uh, created because I thought that there must be some other families like us out there that don't have a diagnosis. And there is no, I mean, there are certain rare disease groups once you have a diagnosis, but there really isn't any group that can support people without a diagnosis, especially um, families with children that are undiagnosed. So I started the group because I wanted to share the resources that I found because of the individuals and the, the, uh, the organizations that I've come across that have given me uh, um, resources uh, to help us along our way. 
Uh, and it's not just the uh, getting the diagnosis, but also um, areas of like special needs, um, disability at school, or getting equipment like a wheelchair, um, or even um, sibling support. Mm -hmm. And as well as meeting other parents of undiagnosed or rare uh, disease children who share stories and, and just share their experience and as far as positions and resources too. Uh, so, um, so we actually this year in 2021 renamed the group, the support group to CURE and CURE is short for complex, undiagnosed, rare and extraordinary. And, uh, there is a website, um, it's uh, cureundx.com. And so there's resources there as well as, uh, uh, an email contact that, um, people can contact me through there. And um, also, I have a, a website for Alex. Okay. Uh, Alex's website is alexsodyssey.com. And there, uh, the website shares uh, his journey uh, to diagnosis and more information, of course, on IRF2BPL uh, itself. Okay, those are some really good resources there. Thank you for sharing that. I hope listeners will take some time to go and look at those websites. I want to remind the audience, too, if you are undiagnosed or have a child or know somebody who is undiagnosed here at Sanford Research, we do have something called the CORDS Registry in which we do enroll people who have a diagnosis or those who are undiagnosed we try to link people anywhere in the world with researchers anywhere in the world who are studying either their rare condition or looking at you know specific symptoms. So, Carolyn, is there anything else that you want us to know before we wrap up here today? Um, I just want to emphasize that it is really important um, to increase the awareness of both undiagnosed uh, 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 undiagnosed patients as well as rare disease uh, and the way to do that is to really share um, your journey whether whether you're an undiagnosed um, family or one with rare disease I think it's very important to share your journey your story because that's the way mm -hmm. that you'll be able to raise awareness um, not just to the general public but also to research that may be studying the condition or um, connect you with families that may have the same condition. Uh, and because that's actually where I've met m many families, um, both currently with, with our son's diagnosis and in undiagnosed. And it, it's very um, useful to be able to make those connections and increase the awareness uh, so that we can kind of all move further along in, in, in our, each of our different journeys. Yeah, well, I just want to thank you again for taking the time to share Alex's story and everything that you're doing for the rare community. We appreciate hearing stories like yours that give hope and just everything that you're doing for people out there in the rare disease community. So thank you again. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. The theme music for Chordscast is borrowed with permission from Scott Holmes's song, So Happy. To learn more about Sanford Research and our registry, Chords, visit us at sanfordresearch.org chords. We'd love to hear from you. 
Send us your questions, comments, stories, or feedback to chords at sanfordhealth.org. Find us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at Sanford Chords. The content of Cordscast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. We'll see you next time on Cordscast.